the giant thinkers giant thinkers podcast hey guys welcome to the show i'm ram castillo and in this podcast i'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers creatives and giant thinkers Hello Giants, Ram here. This is episode number 68. Today's guest is a Canadian businessman, author, and TV personality from Shark Tank USA. He co-founded the tech firm SoftKey, which was later acquired for more than $4 billion. He has since launched O'Leary Funds, an investment fund company, O'Leary Fine Wines, and a best-selling book series on financial literacy, which covers everything you need to know about making, saving, and growing money. He's even stepped his foot into the world of politics, which we briefly talked about. He has a current investment portfolio of 29 companies, possibly more from when I interviewed him two months ago to now. He first learned about entrepreneurship at a young age after his stepfather advised him to not become a full-time photographer a story I won't spoil as our guest delivers it so well. And now he is on a mission to educate the next generation of entrepreneurs to truly succeed. Some of the topics we spoke about include the common mistakes he sees people aged 20 to 35 make with their money, his advice for going all in professionally in your creative craft, the best and worst investments he has made, and three common attributes all successful pitchers have on Shark Tank. So if you're thinking about making a success out of your creative craft or are looking for ways to grow your financial and personal freedom through running a business, then this is for you as we uncover what truly makes an entrepreneur successful. Now, before we dive in, I'd like to introduce you to my image search library of choice called Stocksy. Personally, it's an image library that doesn't suck in a world where so many do. They provide royalty-free stock photography and cinematic video footage as well. But the reason why they don't suck is because it's extremely high quality in every single way. Now, before I plug the 20% discount code, which is insanely generous for them to offer the Giant Thinkers community, and before you hit the fast forward button, let me expand really quickly. First, the Stocksy image library isn't full of cheesy overused assets. Stocksy use a highly curated editing approach to carefully select the most useful and authentic photos to include in their collection. Why do they do this? Well, their business model differs from traditional stock photography companies. They focus on creative integrity, fair play, fair profit sharing, and co-ownership for its members and artists. Secondly, their website is very, very easy to use. The searching, the filtering, the navigating, it's all clear, intuitive, and simple. They even have a drag and drop image search feature. So if you have an image and want to see a similar image on Stocksy, you can do that, drag the image into their website and Stocksy will populate anything that is related for you to review. They've also launched a search by color feature. So that means you can enter a hex code or use their slider to search Stocksy's collection by color. Our friends at Stocksy have raised the bar and the industry's expectations when it comes to stock photography and cinematography. The quality is remarkable and distinct. You'll see the difference immediately upon searching on there yourself. And like me, you'll struggle to go back to other libraries you are using. Their images also just start at And as a listener of this podcast, you get a 20% off discount. Head to giantthinkers.com slash Stocksy. That's giantthinkers.com slash S-T-O-C-K-S-Y. And you can use the code giantthinkers20. The link is also on this blog post. Alrighty, time to hear from Mr. Wonderful himself. I present to you the brutally honest, relentless, and generous Kevin O'Leary. Kevin O'Leary, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. How are you doing today, mate? Great. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. 
So first off, Kevin, I have an icebreaker question for you. Is there a sport you enjoy playing the most? And I ask this because if one was to Google your name on the image tab, it's all with you in either a suit and tie or covered in money, quite quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, making money is a sport and a full-time one, but <laughs> I must say I enjoy squash. Squash. I've been playing squash for, for 30 years. I'm still a D player, which I think is accomplishment for my age. And all the young buckaroos that try and beat me, I kick their ass. Fantastic. <laughs> I'd, I'd expect nothing less. So, Kevin, where would you say your expertise lies? You know, I'm a pretty good measure of people. That's only because of experience. I, I've had you know, many great successes and many catastrophic failures, but the core of investing is trying to take a, take a read of the people you're, you're investing in. Many people will say this, but entrepreneurs come in many different shapes and sizes. And the ones that I like to invest in have already felt the sting of failure. They've already tried once or twice before. They understand how hard it is to be successful. So my secret sauce is trying, trying to understand the psyche of that individual I'm going to be in partnership with for the next three to seven years, because that's really what the majority of these investments are like, through the ups and downs, the good and the bad, and, and all that. And, and if you don't have what it takes, I'm, I'm a pretty good read of that. I don't try and get emotional about it. I'm not trying to make friends. I'm trying to make money. And so that's the kind of person I want to invest in. Now, you just mentioned uh, you have that innate ability to read people through experience and there are many layers to you that most probably wouldn't know beyond being a businessman and ruthlessly entertaining on TV. Uh, but you've also got a, a huge love and hobby for playing guitar. You are a CBC funny man. You are a wine producer. You've got your own your own wine brand um, and products. You're an avid photographer and, of course, an ex-software executive with, um, you know, loads of experience there, to name a few. Before we unpack some of that, can you tell us a little about your childhood and how you grew up? I had an unusual childhood in this sense. My biological father died when he was 37 years old. And um, that was quite a shock for our family. And my mother uh, met a new man, uh, my current stepfather, and he was um, in his, doing his final studies at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And when he graduated, he joined the ILO, the International Labor Organization, and we started traveling all over the world every 24 months, a different country. So I've lived in Cyprus, Tunisia, Ethiopia, Switzerland, Japan, um, you know, and which was a very extraordinary experience for me. Obviously, at the time, it was disruptive, but I met Haley Selassie when, before he became a deity in Addis Ababa. I met his lion cubs. I met Paul Pot in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, before he you know, became basically insane, one would say, and went through the whole killing fields thing. So now, in, in retrospect, it's made me a much better global investor. I mean, I have investments in these countries now because it doesn't scare me to invest in real estate in Cambodia, which has been a phenomenal return, or in any of these other countries like Ethiopia or Tunisia, because I've been there, I've lived there, I've met the people, and I remember that, and I can go back now to Jordan or to Dubai or any of these places. And so to me, that really changed the way I look at the world. I don't, I, I really look at it as a, as a very intertwined, um, very dynamic, interesting place. And I have friends all around the world. That's fantastic. And if someone was to sort of trace back on your first ever job, uh, because you've, you've had so many, but what would you say is, is, was the job that helped you realize that you wanted to be your own boss? There is a defining moment and I've discussed it in the past, but it, it and I believe everybody has this occurred in some time in their lives. Mine was very simple. I was, uh, my first job, I got hired as an ice cream scooper in an ice cream store called Nadine's Ice Cream Parlor. It was owned by a woman. And uh, the only reason I took the job, it was in a, uh, in a mall, a shopping mall. 
across your shoe store where my where the girl of my fancy was working, and I was hoping I could, you know, finish work at the ice cream store and then see her after she got out of the shoe store. And the very first day, uh, the plan was working as I planned. The very first day, I was finishing up. And what happens when you're selling ice cream is people want a taster, and you give it to them in a small spoon, but they often take out their chili gum and throw it on the floor. So the owner said to me, listen, before you leave, I want you to scrape the the gum off the Mexican tiles on this floor. And I said, well, wait a minute. I was very concerned. I didn't mind getting down my knees scraping gum, but I didn't want the girl across the mall to see me doing this. So I said to her, wait a second. You hired me as a scooper, not a scraper. And I, I'm not going to do that. If you want somebody to scrape gum, hire a scraper. And she said, how about this? You're fired. And uh, I didn't even know what that meant at the time. It was very humiliating when I got my bicycle and went back and told my mother what occurred. And at that moment, because it was so shocking to me, I realized in an instant, like a flash of light, that in the world, there's two types of people. There's the people that own the store, and there's the people that scrape the shit off the floor. And you have to decide, which one are you? And it doesn't mean I'm against being an employee. That's a great life, too. If you're a good employee, that works and gives you lots of free time. But I never worked for anybody again after that experience. She defined my life by that moment. That moment changed me forever. Now, decades later, I can afford to go back and bulldoze that mall if I want. But the reason <laughs> that I'm in that situation is all because of her. And I tried to find her, the owner of the store, but we never did. And so the camera crew, nobody knows what happened to her. But that was the moment that made me realize I don't want to work for anybody. Yeah, I was going to say that would be a good, good shock for her to uh, see how far you've come. Well, I owe it to her. I, de- I, de- <laughs> I was, I think, at that time I was... 13 or 14 years old. Wow. That's full on. Okay. So in that age, you also, you know, in your teens, you, you bought your first camera at some point in 1970, uh, a Soviet made Zenit ESLR. I've, I found out a camera for people who couldn't afford to buy a Pentax with money that you earned washing trucks. Uh, you then joined the the club uh, photo club at Nepean High School in Ottawa. Was this a self-initiated love for photography or were you influenced by your friends or a particular person? You know, I've always believed, and I didn't know it at the time, but I think it, I think it is important that if you think about the business and investing and the binary nature of that, it's black and white. Either you make money or you lose money. There is no gray. That's completely different than the chaos of art. Art is in the eye of the beholder. It's a very chaotic experience. There's many ways to display it or pursue it. Photography for me and music are two of my great interests. But I believe if you want to be successful in business, you have to embrace the chaos of the arts because it gives you a different way of thinking. And that's not why I pursued photography, but it certainly has helped me now. I was interested in you know, the chemistry of photography and, and developing film and, and shooting images. And some of the, those images today, I still have. I've digitized them, obviously. But I wanted to become a professional photographer. And my stepfather said, here's something you've got to consider. It's a very competitive space. You're not that good. And you're probably starved to death. You should go and pursue a business degree and figure out if you can find a way to make money and make photography, your hobby. Now, I was quite insulted by that, but he was, of course, was right. But today, you know, I couldn't afford any equipment back then. Today, I have, you know, a plethora of some of the world's best photographic equipment and multiple studios that I work in and I shoot. And I, and I do still produce photography. I sell it for charity. I've been quite successful. My last exhibition in Miami at Art Miami, did about 150,000 of sales, and I gave it all to charity. But in a way, it's full circle for me. You know, it's sort of, it was the challenge of my father saying you couldn't make it doing it. And that's kind of what I liked about it, and, and I still do it. Same with music. You know, I want to be a rock star like everybody else. I'm still practicing guitar. I have a massive guitar collection. I was actually a shareholder in Fender for a while and um, still have a relationship there. I just acquired a 1961 Fender Stratocaster, which by many for guitar collectors considered the Stradivarius of guitars. It plays like honey. It's just beautiful. But those are pursuits, you know? It's sort of the only way I can do those things was I was successful in business, or at least 
you know, trying to be. And, and that buys you a certain, certain personal freedom. And that's why I tell all my entrepreneurs, it's not about the greed of money. It's all about personal freedom. Yeah, it's almost like your stepfather pointed out the risk to that strategy of pursuing photography in a way that today everybody's a photographer. The difference between an amateur and a professional is quite blurred. For those going all in on photography as a profession or any creative craft as a job, uh, designers included, where do you see the big opportunities lie or how should they position themselves? There's nothing wrong with that pursuit. First of all, you should ask yourself and be honest with yourself, am I good enough? The, the images I create, are they, are they world-class? And you can see the difference. If you're a photographer, you know if you have good work or you don't. But the way that the photographers I know, and I know plenty of them now that make their living and a good living doing it, is they specialize in very specific verticals. And let me give you an example. One of the photographers I know very well does industrial photography, specifically jet aircraft. He specializes in taking photographs for Airbus and Boeing and Cessna and Gulfstream. And so when they think about who is going to shoot the next model of my aircraft, he's their go-to guy. And, and there is no other guy. He is the world leader in taking images of, of, of aircraft. Very complex job because he's a massive airplanes, but that's what he does. And, and by specializing in that space and having a fee that's stratospheric, it's it's a rounding error to Boeing or to you know Airbus. They don't care if they give this guy a quarter of a million dollars for a picture. It doesn't matter. But for him, it's a fantastic living. And my point is, he specialized. There are people that specialize in wildlife photography, understanding how to shoot large animals from a low angle, and digging a pit in the ground, and all that stuff. And and those are the ones that actually make it. Obviously, modeling, um, photography. I work with a lot of, of uh, a lot of stuff in magazines. I've met all the New York and London uh, and Berlin photographers over time. They specialize in certain areas, and so that's my advice to people: is find that thing that makes you unique, and then and, and then own it, own that brand, and all your social media should be about that. Everything you talk about should focus on that, because the world's a noisy place. But you can become very successful if you specialize. Yeah, that's really good advice, Kevin. Uh, it reminds me of uh, someone I interviewed named Blair Enns, and he he wrote a book about pricing creativity, and he spoke about people being scared of going through a very narrow door to specialize, but they failed to realize that beyond that narrow door are more doors, and that that it, it will just give you that enormous opportunity to own and dominate a market, just just like your friend there shooting Boeing's and planes and whatnot. Um, so that, that's really great. You also worked in film, interestingly enough, from around 1980 yes. to 1983, making short films to play between periods on a Canadian TV show called Hockey Night. How important is it to experiment and to try different jobs and, and different responsibilities so that we, it can lead to, as you said, um, seeing if, if, you're, if you're, you're good enough and if you're, you've got some form of talent and, uh, and promise in that, in that area. Yeah, that was an interesting job. It was called Special Night Television. The three of us had started the company. We specialized in creating uh, short intermission programming for the, 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 uh, the Hockey League, which was in Detroit and Boston, Toronto, the original six teams. I mean, the, the NHL is now you know, a big North American phenomenon, but we were producing the, the intermission sport. So we'd run around the country, the U.S. and Canada, for four days of the week and then it was shot on film. And then I, I was a cameraman slash editor slash sound man. So it was very good training for me um, being on the other side of the camera for a while to understand how to make good television. And we would edit it and set it up to the satellite on Saturday morning. We created a format called Don Cherry's Grapevine. For those that like hockey, they remember that he was the coach of Bobby Orr out of Boston. He was a very famous coach. It became a hit television show. And it was my first deal because somebody bought it from us and we had only run it for 36 months and it was a huge financial success. And that was the seed money that I then went on to start my next software company called SoftKey. And that became the learning company and so on. So entrepreneurs go through these iterations. You don't know what's going to work. But in a way, it was trying to you know, go back to my stepfather and say, look, I know how to do this. I can make money. 
as a photographer. And in a way I did there for a while, but today, you know, I still keep my editing chops up. I obviously use computer tools now, but I, I cut a lot of the social media video that you see on my websites just to keep my chops up. And, and I do it, even though we hire professional editors, I am an editor. My daughter is a very successful editor now. She produces commercials out of New York. I think it runs in the family a little bit. But editing television has become the engine for social media today. Instead of shooting you know, a 29-minute show today, maybe that shows seven minutes, but it's packed with data information, and fast cuts, and all the rest of that. But I love that. that that's the creative side. And it loops into my businesses. I mean, I've got 29 companies now, and I produce a lot of the social media for them because we're good at it within, you know, the O'Leary Financial Group. But it's a long answer to the whole idea of you don't know what your journey is going to be as an entrepreneur. You have no idea. You have to pursue your passion. You have to work really hard. And then one day you wake up and you find out, wow, I'm rich. But that's not why you started it. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, that's not why you did it. Yeah, I think it's not a long answer at all. I think it's very much uh, valuable and relevant for the listeners to hear about how those dots were connected, uh, especially from someone like you who has dabbled in in all these different different areas and and looking at experimentation as part of the process. You know, it, it led you to, as you said, even indirectly, it funded your uh, first round that you self, you know, uh, invested in in SoftKey. Uh, I didn't even know that, so that's that's incredible. You briefly mentioned earlier that you you had a, a recent exhibition, and uh, you actually had had a, have had a few. And in October two thousand and thirteen, you published a sleeve containing twenty five photo plates and held an exhibit of your photography in Toronto titled Kevin O'Leary, 40 years of photography. You sold limited editions and raised 97,000 for that one. And uh, all proceeds going to teen entrepreneurs in Canada. So why do you feel it's important to nurture young entrepreneurs in particular? Well, I, I actually think it's a debt that every entrepreneur that's been successful has. You got to give back. And there's multiple ways to do it. But what I find works best is obviously most entrepreneurs are looking for seed capital. So that's great. But the important thing to teach them is not about your successes. It's more important to discuss your failures with them so that they don't do the same things, that they don't make the same mistakes. And I've learned, you know, having both operated many businesses myself and invested in many others, what works and what doesn't. And I think these are timeless lessons. So I, you know, I do give money to entrepreneurs. I, I have a portfolio of the 29 companies now. Um, and I, you know, I raise funds for charity, et cetera, but I also teach at places like MIT and Harvard and Notre Dame, Waterloo, McGill, Temple. And I teach graduating cohorts of engineers. And, and the reason I do that is a third of every engineering class generally will start a company. That's the, those are the stats over the decades. And so these are prime entrepreneurs that, and I, and I talk about failure and, and not success. It's easy to talk about your successes. It's very difficult to explain how failure works and how you learn from it and how to avoid the mistakes that others have made. And there are plenty. So those, those are very well-attended classes. I really enjoy them. And, and I think that's a form of giving back. And I do it because you, you, that, that's just the karma of it. My mother always said, you know, that there's a big circle of life when it comes to success, you have to give back. And it's just, and I believe it. I, the older I get, the more I realize she was right. Yeah. Well, the more I've dug uh, into you, Kevin, uh, the less scary you've become. <laughs> <laughs> so you, look, you've written some incredibly successful and well-received books as well. And so um, besides you doing those uh, voluntary works, you've written a really cool series uh, under the cold hard truth umbrella uh, the first being cold hard truth on business money and life the second cold hard truth on men women and money and the third being cold hard truth on family kids and money so what are some of the mistakes you see 20 to 35 year olds make when it comes to their relationship with money because they're the bulk of our listeners yeah, in life, there's three phases. You, you, you start your life, if you're lucky, with a family that supports you 
and tries to educate you, you know, to go as far as you can in education. During that period, you may not be working or creating any wealth whatsoever because you're a young man or woman and you're, you're growing up underneath your family's umbrella. And that's a wonderful thing. Not easy for everybody, but many people enjoy that. When you go off to college and start to pursue an education, is the first time you experience debt. And this is where people run into a tremendous amount of trouble because in most societies, including Europe and North America and even where you are in Australia, we don't spend a lot of time educating people about debt or financial literacy. Um, we do everything else, such as education, geography, math, reading skills, you name it, but we don't talk about where money comes from. And that's a big problem. And so during that phase, that second phase, when you're accumulating debt, um, that's during an education, then you fall in love, get married, you buy a home that's more debt. This is the whole cycle of life, because by the time you hit 45, you need to be out of debt and you need to be investing for your retirement, which is coming in 20 years. And so what I've taught young people is a very simple equation. All of us are guilty of this. Most people, when you look at how they spend their money, and I do this with some of the wealthiest people in the world, I say to them, forget about a computer, get a piece of paper. Let's just spend an hour looking at the last 90 days of your life, all the sources of income you have, all of them. And let's put on the other piece of paper, how you spent your money over the last 90 days. And what you invariably find is the majority of these people are spending more than they're bringing in, even extremely wealthy people. And the truth is most people buy a lot of crap they don't need. Look at your shoes and your, and your clothes and the stuff around your home or apartment or condo. You have bought a bunch of crap you don't need. And that basically was the money you should have invested. So I ask people, look, think about what you buy every day and think about how you don't need it and how that money, if put aside, would multiply. So here's the, here's the equation. We'll use the American statistic. The average salary is $97,000 a year sorry, $57,000 a year in the U.S. That's the average. If you just took 10% of your paycheck by not buying some crap and put it into the markets, which have given an average of 7.5% over the last 100 years return, you would end up with $1,120,000 in the bank by the time you're 65. Anybody can live off that. That's a very simple goal, and that's what I spend a lot of time teaching. It's not that complicated. It's very simple just requires some self-discipline and you must get out of debt. You have to start paying back your debt as soon as you can. Yeah, agreed. And do you find that it's more important to prioritize paying off debt than putting in your first bit of savings for investment? Yes. You can't invest if you owe somebody debt because most of that debt is credit card debt at 21%. You can't make 21% in the market guaranteed. The credit card companies can, and that's why I own all of them. I'm a big investor in credit card companies because if you're so stupid to pay them 21%, why shouldn't I profit? Same as tobacco companies. If you're an idiot and you smoke, I should profit off you. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of the way I look at the world is not a nice place that way, but it's, it's a fact. If you, if you have credit card debt, you're paying 20% on average, which is insane. You should pay that off. Makes sense. Now, Kevin... What's been one of the best investments and one of the worst uh, that you've uh, experienced? And what are the learnings that come to mind from both those that perhaps we can keep in mind for ourselves? What I've learned is that even when you think you know what you're investing in and you make assumptions about success, very often you're wrong. And investing in some ways is serendipitous. It's, it's luck sometimes. That's why you need a portfolio. You need diversification. That's why I have 29 companies. But recently, everybody knows Shark Tank, often called Dragon's Den in other countries. I'm a big investor on that platform. I have the biggest exit in history of that program anywhere on earth. The sale of Plated, which was a meal kit company to Albertsons last year for $300 million. And that occurred because Amazon bought Whole Foods in America and within weeks, Albertsons, who was a competitor to Whole Foods, wanted a digital strategy, so they bought my company, which was a Shark Tank company. A couple of guys that were ex-Marines started a company that made meal kits and shipped them to you. So if you're a millennial and you 
You just want to cook one meal a night. You went to playdid.com and you bought the product. That was a huge outcome. That was the most successful. And, you know, um, if you, and obviously a great success for me. Uh, and of course, the plated guys were all very happy about that. But who knew that was going to happen? That's just serendipitous luck. I've had some catastrophes. Mark Cuban and I invested in something in the toy industry called Toy Guerrilla, which was a Netflix of toys that shipped a, a, a box of toys to your house every month. Disaster. We lost half a million dollars in two months. So you get the good and the bad and the ugly and you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. But luckily, I have more successes than failures, and I just drive on. Yeah, I remember that plated one, actually. That was incredible. Um, 300 million that sold for. That's incredible. Um, yeah. There was one other standout that, that was probably a bit more recent, which was um, a high internal rate on return for Wicked Good Cupcakes by mother and daughter Tracy Noonan and, and Danny Villaggi. And... Uh, I, I loved how creative you were as well in getting that deal to to close. You you put forward one dollar on every cupcake is what you wanted. One dollar on every cupcake until the seventy five k was returned, and then there onwards fifty cents on perpetuity. Um, I bet you're glad about that because now it's the number one cupcake brand in America, and uh, I found out that that FedEx have also said that it's uh, the number one cake flown across America um, uh, in terms of packaging. H- how did that all come about? And how's the experience been since you invested in Wicked Good Cupcakes? You know, my thinking with Wicked was that um, the story was so compelling. Everybody that shot, saw that episode um, on Shark Tank loved the story of Tracy and Danny, the mother-daughter team that was you know, fighting the odds to start a business in a commodity space like cupcakes. And they were, they were wildly successful because it, it, it was a family business. And so by doing a royalty deal, we aligned our interests. I want them to sell as many cupcakes as possible because I'm getting 45 cents a jar. And I own no equity. I have no rights to decide what the family does with that business. And it worked out just fine for us. It's the highest internal rate of return deal in Shark Tank history. I made my money back in 28 days because when it hit the airwaves, they got tens of thousands of orders. I remember it took us, you know, two months just to fulfill the orders we had. And the product was fantastic because there's no preservatives in it. It tastes like homemade cake. So they got tons more orders after people tried it. And now, as you say, it's the number one cupcake in America and it's gone beyond. I understand it's going to be sold in Australia soon, which is fantastic, but there's nothing like wicked good cupcakes. They captured an imagination of consumers with a really high quality product delivered in a jar. So it's very fresh and people just love it. But more importantly, they're able to tell a story. And I use their example. The Wicked Good Cupcake story is the one I teach at Harvard because what they did successfully was communicate directly, directly to customers through social media. Every week they tell their trials and tribulations to the installed become wildly loyal to them just a phenomenal loyalty with their customer base and if anybody's unhappy with the product they ship another one they take care of it they have tremendous customer support and the, the whole idea of what wicked did is now being studied by all the other shark tank companies that come behind them because they are the most successful company to ever acquire customers at a low cost that's what they did this this customer acquisition cost is zero and the reason they do that is through social media. And they are the example. They are the number one rock stars of, of Shark Tank that way. And that's why they're now in every course material I teach right across the nation. Yeah, I'm hugely impressed by uh, Wicked. And uh, I found out through your team, Kevin, that they are expanding to Australia. Uh, I look forward to that. And uh, I've, I've already gotten in touch with Tracy, so, so I can hopefully get her on the podcast as well. <laughs> such a great story and it gives us gives us hope for those starting a business speaking of for those listeners looking to pitch their business to an investor you mentioned something there that i really appreciated and it was about what was what was a good deal for them as well and 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 yourself and it was a win-win for both of you uh, i had a lot of listeners feed in questions to ask you around how to pitch their business to an investor and also how to make sure that they're not kind of getting, uh, getting the, the shorter end of the stick in a way. 
You know, it's funny you bring that up because I also do a podcast called Ask Mr. Wonderful, and this is the number one question everybody asks. Oh, really? On Ask Mr. <laughs> Wonderful podcast. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's by, by miles. So here's the answer. If you go back and look at the 15 years, and, and it's re- this is a really good data because Dragon's Den and Shark Tank has been on all around the world, in Britain, in Canada, in Brazil, and many, many countries, 32 of them. So there's been hundreds of thousands of pitches. And it turns out there was a professor about six years ago who went back and looked at all the unedited tape. I can't remember if it was done out of Canada or England. But anyways, he went and looked at were there any common attributes to the deals that actually got funded? It didn't determine the outcome of the business. It just got them on their way because it was the first check they got. And what he found out was there are three things that every, not these attributes aren't there some of the time, but they're all of the time. It doesn't matter what the language was, doesn't matter what the geography is, here they are. Number one, were they able to articulate the opportunity in 90 seconds or less? In the case of the cupcakes, hi, I'm, I'm Tracy Noonan, I put cupcakes in a jar and I FedExed them to you. It took 11 seconds, but you knew right, right away what a deal was. And so it turns out nobody will follow you if you can't articulate the opportunity succinctly. Number two, is what makes you special? After all, great ideas are dime a dozen. Executional skills are very difficult. And so you need to explain why you're the right team or person to execute on the opportunity. And that's far more complex. But you find that in the Shark Tank deals that were successful, they spend a good portion of time, it's more than 90 seconds, explaining how they're the right team to execute. And when you get those two together, great executional skills and a great idea, most of the investors won't write a check. And lastly, and this is the killer, I've seen the air get sucked out of a room so fast. If you don't know your numbers, you deserve to burn in hell in perpetuity. <laughs> because there you are, you've connected with an investor, they want to give you money, and they start asking you gross margins, growth of market, how many competitors, break-even analysis. You have to know that stuff. If you don't know it, bring somebody who does. But if you get all three of those right, you'll get a check most of the time. Very, very uh, good advice, Kevin. I can almost hear all the listeners scribbling madly as we as we discuss this. You mentioned something about the numbers as well. So often we see that, don't we, on Shark Tank and Dragons Den? They just don't know the numbers or maybe even like the definition of some of those things, like turnover, revenue, profit. Um, yeah, I mean, how does one arrive at an opportunity like that and not and not know their numbers? It happens all the time and it's very depressing to see. I mean, it's not good enough just to be a promoter. You have to understand the block and tackle and the language of business, which are numbers. And that's why I tell people, if you don't have that skill set, find somebody who does. Great teams going back to, you know, companies that have started are often made up of two people that are, you know, the exact opposite of each other because they augment each other's skills. And, And, you know... I think about Wozniak and Jobs. I worked for a while for Steve Jobs. His skill set was unique in marketing. He was not a very nice person, but Wozniak was the antithesis of him. He was an engineer, not a marketer, really nice guy to Steve's absolute prick that he was. Is that right? And, but together, they, they created incredible um, business together. That, that's a good example of how it works. You need each other. Makes sense. So you also once said, Kevin, that uh, it's bad karma to discuss net worth. I don't need any more money. I need more time. And interestingly, I I actually ran into a video interview with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, where Warren said, I can buy anything I want, but I can't buy time. So how do you curate what's important and what's your criteria for prioritization? The way I tell people about entrepreneurship is that the whole idea is you work like hell for 10 or 15 years in your 20s and 30s. And the reason you would do that and do so much sacrifice to your personal family life is to buy freedom when you come out the other end. And, and, I, and I think that is the whole reason you do it. So the way I look at it now is Every minute that I have left, I want to enjoy. I want to do the things that I really enjoy, that, that mean something to me, and that I get up in the morning excited to do. So each week, I look at the next, and each Friday, I look at the next week, chopped up into 30-minute segments, and I sit, I sit down with my staff and say, okay, what's happening next week? Let's look at next week. 
And if there's something on there I don't want to do, I just say I'm not doing that <laughs> because nobody can make me do it. I do whatever the hell I want, and I deserve that because I earned it. I, I made this myself. I worked very hard for it. And therefore, pretty well every you – know, there's some pleasantries that happen within family and catastrophes and all that stuff. But pretty well the way I spend my time is pursuing the things that are of interest to me. And that might be teaching. It might be investing in something. It might be going somewhere. I'm off to Dubai next week to the World Conference. You know, those are interesting things for me to do. And so at least in the back end, you know, I'm probably in the seventh inning of a nine-inning golf game now in terms of my life. I want, I want this time to be fruitful and useful and enjoyable. And that's, that is a very good way to look at it. I understand what Gates and Buffett say about that. I think they feel the same way. You can see how Gates spends his time. He can, he's, a, he's a contemporary of mine. I remember sitting with him at Comdex when we were both absolutely inebriated in the parking lot when he was launching, you know, DOS and I was, you know, selling plotters and just who knew, you know, what would happen from there. But he's probably the same age I am and probably has the same philosophy. And I think that's great. I truly value that insight, uh, Kevin. Thank you for that. A few more questions for you before we wind down. I only have a few more minutes with you, which which I don't take lightly. Um, thank you so much for, for giving me your time. A question I ask all my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Kevin, perhaps the youngster finishing high school, what would you tell him? You know, I've been asked that question many times in different forms, like what would you change if you could? And my answer is always, I wouldn't change anything. And, and the reason I say that is I believe that the people are the distillation of experience that they, they, what happens to you in life is, is a, is a serendipitous journey. You can't control it. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly. But if you were to go back and change anything or provide advice, you wouldn't be the same person 30 seconds later. And I, and I, I would be against doing that. And so you know, I'm sure I've made mistakes and, you know, do I have regrets? Sure. But I wouldn't change any of them. And I don't think it would be a good idea to do that because those experiences make you what you are. That's, that's what you are. And if you're happy with where you're at, it's because you maneuvered through that life. And, and I, and I think this should be celebrated in some extent, to some extent that, you know, you did something that was hard to do. You, you, you went through that path and you shouldn't change anything if you're happy where you are. And I'm very happy. You know, I, I get lots of critics and everything else, but I wouldn't change my life at all. And Kevin, who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life, that person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? Well, you may find this strange, but the guy that I've enjoyed the most following over the years and just finished his autobiography is Keith Richards. Uh -huh. If there's anybody that influenced, it's me, it's him. Because, you know, he, he, if, you, if you look at his life and the crazy stuff he's been through and the outcome at the end, he's a remarkable story. He's from and, the and Rolling Stones, isn't he? he? Yes, but, but he also, you know, talks a lot about the pursuit of happiness and what matters in his family and how important that is to him and, and the adversity and the challenges with his partner, Mick Jagger and all of that stuff. And it, it, it to me it is a really inspirational book for any business leader to read because you know, that if, if that's a global franchise, the Rolling Stones, and, and he's 50% of it. If you look at it that way, or at least 50%. And, and his view of how it worked is completely different than his partner's. And it just shows you all the lessons I've talked about, you can find on display within the Rolling Stones. You know, it's great music, of course, but it's one hell of a business, too. It's a cash flow giant. And, and they have built a brand extraordinaire that's, you know, been successful for 50 years. Hard to find that in business. And you know him personally, Kevin? No, I've met them all, but I don't know him personally. I can't say he's a friend. I keep running into these guys in different places. But, you know, I, I, I know 
the story through his own words. And, you know, when people ask me, who do I admire? He's the guy. I mean, I just think what he's been through and, and always kept his compass um, in the right direction. He's, he's a good example for any, I tell all my students, read his book. That's fantastic. Well, it, it sounds like someone that uh, we should all look into because you, you didn't you didn't hesitate with uh, with that name. So, uh, Keith nope. Keith Richards. There you go. He's uh, just looked him up now. Seventy five years old. It's kicking on. It's fantastic. Yep. Back on tour. Yeah. Oh wow. There you go. Um, what's next for you, Kevin? With everything you're involved in for the rest of the year and beyond, uh, one of my uh, listeners has said, uh, "Prime Minister of Canada, perhaps." <laughs> I ran for Prime Minister of Canada two years ago. Oh, did you really? I, 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 yeah, I've won in every province except Quebec, where because I don't speak French, and that's seventy-eight seats out of the three hundred and thirty-eight seats. So. They're effectively the Florida of Canada. If you don't win there, you can't win. So I lost in Quebec. I spent about $2.5 million. And under the Canadian law, I have to pay it all back myself, $1,600 at a time. In other words, I have to find people to contribute to a campaign that's two years old. So it's been a big challenge for me. And the way I've done it is I've said to anybody, you contribute to my past mistake in politics, and I'll double it to your charity, which has kind of worked out. Wow. So... But I, I, I delved into the politics of Canada. I'm a Canadian and Irish citizen, so I can play in both countries. And uh, it was a great learning lesson. I'm glad I did it. But uh, politics is a nasty, nasty business. I don't have to tell you that, just watching what's going on around the world. Oh, yeah. But it, it also <laughs> gives great life lessons. And I'm glad I did it. It's just one of those, you know, journeys along the road that I talk about. Anything else this year that stands out, Kevin, that uh, we should look out for? Well, I think everybody should learn how to play an instrument. I always say that. I enjoy playing guitar every weekend. I work hard on it. You never stop learning, ever, if you play an instrument. You can never be the best. There's always somebody better than you. But the whole point is, it's a great experience in life to learn from. And so that's my two cents of advice. Fantastic. And uh, are we going to see you in Australia anytime soon, mate? I think so. You know, I'm not sure when, but... I just came back from Manila. Uh, I was getting close to Australia. I flew to Dubai and then on to Manila. And I did it. I went there for one day to give a speech. It was a crazy trip. But I had a great time. Uh, I haven't been to Manila in a while. I went there when I was younger. But, yeah, I think so. I'm doing a lot more international speaking these days and enjoying it immensely. I'm back to Dubai next week for these various conferences. And um, just got back from Botswana, took my family on safari there. That was spectacular. So I'm trying to do the things, as I said earlier, that I want to pursue. It involves a lot of travel, so hopefully I'll be in Australia soon. Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll all look out for that. Uh, Manila is actually uh, where I was born, interestingly enough. I uh, came to Australia no when I was one years old. Yes, my family's from uh, from Philippines. And uh, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? It's, uh, it's quite... Oh, my goodness. The place is on fire. Yeah. I mean, the amount of Asian capital that's gone in there, Chinese money and real estate is extraordinary. Incredible. Absolutely extraordinary. And then you can hop uh, hop around to another island if you if you want to escape the city, but it's it's kind of like a, a little New York. I mean, it's not little. Of course, it's a population of uh, over 100 million people, the, the entire country. I've never seen traffic like that. Unbelievable. I mean, that city is huge in just the... The amount of activity—it's a twenty-four-seven city. It's—I it's, you know, I was still going at four in the morning, <laughs> and the airport runs twenty-four hours a day. It's amazing. Yeah, it's wild. All right, Kevin. So, how can listeners get in touch with you online? Just go to my website, kevinolary.com, or just kevinolary.com, and check me out there. And have—I haven't listened to my podcast too. A lot of the topics we talked about. Askmrwonderful.com. I certainly talk about wicked good cupcakes on that. We definitely will. Kevin, thank you so much for your time, mate. I, I really appreciate it. And it's, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to chat and very generous of you to uh, have a sit down and talk with me for, for all of us to, uh, to learn from. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Take care. 
Thank you for tuning in, Giants. I hope Kevin has given you applicable and relevant advice to utilize for your situation. And if you feel this episode is beneficial to a friend or a loved one, please share this with them. Since 2015, this is what drives my personal mission for the show. I try to interview the world's best experts for all of us to learn from. You can forward giantthinkers.com to anyone and it'll take them right to it. Also, the podcast is available on Spotify. So if that's more convenient than iTunes or Stitcher or other podcasting apps that you use, every episode is available on Spotify as well. Now, a quick teaser for our next guest. She is an Australian businesswoman and the founder of Boost Juice, one of the world's largest juice bars. She's also the author of the book, The Accidental Entrepreneur, where she shares the secrets and skills that took her from housewife to entrepreneur to head of a multinational corporation. Her vision of getting more fruit and veggies in people's diet and loving life along the way is now a reality with over 2 million smoothies and juices sold every month. She has a long list of awards to her name, including BRW, naming her one of 15 people that changed the way Australia does business in the last 35 years. Stay tuned for that one in a few weeks. Lastly, a brief reminder to check out Stocksy. They are my image search library of choice. And upon landing on their website, I'm sure you'll see why. Plus, you get 20% off as a listener, so I really do encourage you to check them out. Their library is highly curated and is not full of those cheesy, overused assets that a lot of other libraries do have. The entire website is the easiest to use of all the libraries I've come across, from searching, filtering, and navigating, all intuitive and simple. They even have a drag and drop feature if you have an image and want to see a similar image on Stocksy, just drag that onto their website and Stocksy will populate anything that is related for you to review. Plus they have a search by color feature, which I absolutely love. You just enter a hex code or use their slider to search Stocksy's collection of photos by color. Super handy when you're designing projects on the fly. So I encourage you to take advantage of the exclusive 20% off discount. Head to giantthinkers.com slash Stocksy. That's giantthinkers.com slash S-T-O-C-K-S-Y. The discount is giantthinkers20. That's the code giantthinkers20. The link is also on this blog post. For any questions regarding the podcast, or anything at all, feel free to reach me on Instagram, send me a DM via my handle, the giant thinker. And lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Kevin who said, there's a big circle of life when it comes to success. So you have to give back. 